Hello, and welcome to Bible Study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. This is Pastor Kevin Thompson, and it's uh, it's been a little while. It's been a little while since I've been able to uh, lead you or join you in Bible Study, because it's all different kind of formats. But point is, is I'm just glad to be back here um, joining you on KFUO um, 8.50 a.m., also on the web or on their podcast version. And for, through St. Paul's De Pere, um, we are looking at what we call our Pastor's Bible Class, where we look at the lectionary readings for the next weekend. Um, so today is July 5th, Sunday, July 5th, when you're when this is originally airing. And these will be we will be looking at the readings uh, scheduled in the lectionary, the three-year lectionary series for Sunday, July 12th, 2020. Uh, but before we get too much further into that, we must begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time to study your word. Uh, as it still might be a little bit odd or unusual for some people to not gather physically to, to have this Bible class together, Lord, we're still blessed by your word. And especially as we look at your word today, look at, at what we, we hear through the scriptures today, we hear that we are incredibly blessed by your word, your powerful, your wonderful word that comes to us and so, Lord, again, may you bless us in our time of study. May you continue to bless me as I lead uh, whoever's joining us in study together and bless all of us that we may hear and as we'll get into, understand the word that you have for us. So, Lord, again, we thank you for this opportunity and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, again, uh, like I said, I'm blessed to be here. It's uh, it's great. Uh, it's a little bit odd, too. I am also um, traveling this weekend, currently in Wisconsin, visiting some of my family that I haven't been able to see for a long time. So glad to be with them and just recording from a whole new location. location. Um, but we look at the lessons for Sunday, July 12th, which is the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, proper 10. Uh, we're going to first look at the Old Testament lesson for that Sunday. And the Old Testament lesson is Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 13. And I would argue this is going to be an incredibly familiar portion of Scripture for many of you who are listening. Um, if not, great, you get to hear Scripture. If it is, great, you get to hear Scripture again. And as we'll look at, especially today, the theme running throughout all of these lectionary readings, the fact that every time we hear God's Word, we get to hear something, whether it be something we needed to hear again, something we hear new, something we hear differently, something that we heard before but just comes to us in a, in a way because we're in a different portion or place in our life. But especially the theme is just, I've said it like six times already, uh, the theme is God's Word on this Sunday of the church year. Um, obviously, God's Word is part of the theme every single um, week of the church year, but especially here we'll look at the power of His Word and how His Word comes to um, us, to the people, to, the, to this earth. So, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 through 13. First, again, God's word says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And here ends our scripture reading for next week. So, 
as we get into this uh, scripture passage, again, I said it rather familiar, but as we always need to do, we look at a little bit of context. The brief context I'll give here is, again, we're looking at the book of Isaiah, Isaiah being a prophet, um, and a prophet being a essentially a messenger for God, someone who God has called, whom God has, has chosen and raised up to share the word with his people. But also the prophets would share oftentimes a word with people, not yet his people, people just in the lands and the nations. Um, so the key word here, again, we have a prophet who's sharing the word of God. And so, especially in here, when we see that so shall my word, of course, this isn't Isaiah's word, but it's uh, God's word through Isaiah. And we're in chapter 55 here. Um, a little bit more context. If you back up in the book of Isaiah to chapter 53, you have one of the suffering servant songs, especially very um, very much referring to Jesus and Christ, a very prophetic word there. And then you look at chapter 55, a couple chapters later, and you have here the effect essentially in this chapter that the people are now invited to trust in the finished work of the suffering servant. So before, you know, Isaiah, he, he's, he's coming to the people, coming to the nations and saying, you know, there's going to be exile. You've been unfaithful. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be exile. But then you get through, especially in the servant songs in 53, especially talking about how the servant will bring salvation. And so now in chapter 55, you have the people. They're invited to actually trust in the finished work of that suffering servant. And they'll get the feast at the banquet of divine abundance. So very literally in the, in the original context, it's time for the people to leave Babylon and come home to Zion. Salvation has been accomplished Judgment has come, and now comes joy and feasting. And then in our context, obviously we're hundreds of years later, and we want to start. We always want to start with the original context that this is literally something that God brought salvation for them, but also He He uses the prophets to tell us about how much more He'll even do for all of His people. So for, too, for us, we can think about the same kind of theme: that judgment comes, but also after judgment comes joy and feasting. That through Jesus Christ comes the ultimate judgment upon sin and death and everything. And that he brings salvation, and having brought salvation to his people, we get to simply trust in God's word, in the finished work of that servant, in the finished work of Christ, and we get to feast at the banquet of his divine abundance. Uh, I don't want to get too ahead of myself because if we could, we could just we could just be talking about that um, and not actually get into things too much. But it's just beautiful that Christ has done the work, the suffering servant has done the work in Isaiah, and then the people, we too, just get to simply trust in what he has and what he gives to us. So we're going to look at this a little bit more in depth. Um, and one key thing, though, just to say right off the bat, is that whether or not we can understand the ways of God, we can trust that his word is true and do what it says. That is just the, essentially, if we're just going to sum it up and you didn't listen any further, that's what this is all about that we may not be able to, actually often we times we cannot understand God's word or the ways in which he works, the ways in which he allows things to happen in this world, but we can trust his word and his word is true and his word will do exactly what it says. Which is what now I do encourage you to keep listening uh, to, this, to this Bible study because now let's get at it more, more specifically in the scripture. Verse 10. Okay, it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven, don't, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. It's, it's, very, it's just beautiful, I think. I mean, you have a very literal um, description of what happens, 
rain and snow come down from heaven, essentially from the from the heavens, from the skies, and it doesn't just return from the ground back to the skies uselessly. It actually waters the earth first. And what's neat here is, not, and now I do not claim to be a scientist by any means, um, but I did pay attention um, in class growing up, and I mean, it's, this is just basic nature. Right, and the fact that especially if you use science to learn about the beauty of God's creation, rain comes down out of the clouds. It waters the earth, the plants, the animals. Everything soaks it up, uses it. You know, but especially then, eventually, the water goes back. It still falls on the earth, and it evaporates back up in the skies and becomes a cloud again. And rain. I mean, it's just this beautiful cycle. Okay, I might be oversimplifying it. Some scientists, you could comment in and tell me uh, more, and I'd be okay with learning about that. But this is the easy part, right? That. Whether or not you understand all the in-depth part, as a human, you can observe this beautiful fact. This is part of creation. This is what the water does. Okay, And, and again, I think this is another time in the scripture where we in our world today, a lot of us who don't have a farming life, uh, I don't. I mean, I've, I've gardened and I've, I've worked a lot of landscaping and gardening um, in my time at, for a, a few years, but most of us don't have actual farm knowledge or don't work on the farm anymore. Now, a lot of people do, and I am blessed by them, right? They provide for us. But in the original context in Isaiah's day, for people who, who didn't have all the, the luxuries, essentially, we have, they're more much more accustomed to this. So they would be very much, when they hear this original word, well, just as the rain, they're, I mean, this is their daily life. They're looking for that water to water their land and, and take care of them because they rely on that far more than we are today because they were blessed with all these other means. So the point is, is the rain and water it actually comes down. It waters the earth. It does what it's supposed to do. And then God's word here takes a direct comparison. It goes into verse 11. Just like that rain, the rain that comes down, does what it's supposed to do, and goes back up, so shall my word be. Super clear. It just says exactly. The rain comes down, does what it's supposed to do, just as the same, so does my word. And it goes on right the next part of that verse. It shall not return to me empty. Uh, one commentator used the word um, not devoid of results, which I just think is a really... Um, great word, not devoid, right? It actually makes, it, it makes results. It makes things happen. And God goes on. If you didn't understand, if that wasn't clear enough, he says, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And this is really the core of our, our passage here today and the, the theme that I've already mentioned and, and, and talked a little bit about is that God's word always brings about what God wants done. And, and first and foremost, before we think of all the application we could of our life and all these other areas, think about creation. Just go back to the beginning for a moment. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. It happened. His word was spoken. It accomplished what it was supposed to do right there. And, and they spoke again and again and kept creating. And that is just, to me, one of the, the clearest pictures. And all the way back to the beginning, and the point is, is then all throughout history, God's word continues to do exactly for which it is purposed. And we can see this all throughout Scripture. That all throughout Scripture, God says uh, that judgment will come. And judgment comes. God says that salvation will come. Salvation comes. The point is, is it happens. Exactly what he says it will do, it 
happens. Now, the challenge is for us, people, humans, whatever you want to call us, uh, we may not at times see it the way that we think we should or that we want to, or of course, as the typical saying goes, in the time frame that we want it. And not to sound redundant, but that's the truth. And I think this is, there. herein lies the challenge with passages like this. And, and this also, keep this in your back of your mind as we will, um, later on in our study today, go to the Gospel of Matthew and talk about a parable that talks about the um, effectiveness and the power of God's Word. But I think herein lies the challenge for many people today is, okay, if God's Word says that it, it does what it says, it accomplishes its purpose, then why is there this? Why did these people not believe? Why, why is there such challenge? All, the, all these whys. And quite honestly, I feel that I would be in the wrong. I would be in error that, to say that I know why. Because I don't. I'm not God. And um, I do feel blessed that that is the one thing the seminary um, made sure to really teach us. Is that, uh, you know, you can't answer for God. We cannot say why. And as soon as you start an- answering why of God, you've stepped in an error because God is God. He's the one who knows and he's the one who knows why. And this is where it does become difficult. So we have to trust, trust that his word does exactly what it says. Now, going back in the context of Isaiah, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you've got a people who, God's people who are unfaithful and so judge it comes. But also, again, if we think of the context, this is 55, which comes after 53, talking about the suffering servant. So you've got the fact that God is, is showing them in his word all this other stuff. And now that he's saying it'll accomplish what it does. So it's not like God also just says, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. And he gives them no evidence. I mean, you could just look all throughout history of God and his people. And he shows evidence to his people that he does exactly what he says he's going to do. Um, don't want to spend our whole time on just two verses now, do we? So we go on in verse 12. It says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Key words in here I would highlight for you is joy and peace. I mean, God's word says it does what it's going to do. That brings joy and that brings peace. But especially, I found this one commentary I really appreciated. Uh, it really went off on to explain a little bit more about this peace. And, and peace we have is shalom, right? The Hebrew word for peace. Um, and I'm not going to get into the whole um, discourse so you could with, where God's peace is more than just absence of war. You could get into that if you wished. Um, but here I want us to look at in this context, peace is the opposite of the exile that the people had experienced. Think about that. A people who are hearing their prophet, the exile that they experience, the exact opposite of that is peace. And who brings them the exact opposite but God, right? All that was wrong is made right and renewed. So I think that's a beautiful word. And, and you're led forth in peace. Uh, also, it's not just the people, but it's the creation. It says there, as I read, the mountains and the hills before you, they are breaking forth singing. They are clapping hands. And so even creation um, is praising God because creation shares in the restoration too it's not just people that are restored but also creation which as i said you know we go back to the beginning in creation god's word accomplished what it was what it was spoken and said to do also in the beginning everything was perfect and good and not only did mankind in the fall um become corrupted and broken but also so did creation 
even creation, the mountains and the hills and the animals, they too experience the effects of a fallen sinful world and the fact that it's not perfect. It's not good as God spoke it to be because it's fallen too. And so here we have the fact that even God's word will bring restoration not just to the people, but even also to the creation. It makes me think of verse Philippians chapter 2, um, verse 10, which I'll turn to briefly. just want to read that kind of as a cross-reference to, to talk about how God's word is what it does too. Verse uh, Philippians chapter 2. Actually, go back up to verse 9, verse 9 and 10 of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, referring to Jesus Christ here, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we got that even in creation, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. So last um, part here, and then we do need a... I need to make sure I keep moving so that we can cover all these all these readings. Um, but verse 13 is, is a beautiful picture of paradise restored. The fact that you've got in verse 13, instead of thorns, you have the cypress. And instead of the briar, the myrtle. So instead of these um, prickly, even painful um, parts of creation, you've got just beautiful and, and not so prickly and bad or uh, hurtful that's not a good word not so hurtful of uh, of, cre- of parts of creation which again goes back to what i said that in creation the curse extended to all things not just people so just to wrap up here um state some kind of summary summary things about this also to kind of re- tie it all in see the the whole connection of all of scripture but isaiah 55 here is, is talking about we're supposed to seek god in his word and that we receive God's good and satisfying gifts through his word. Um, and the reality is, is I mean, if we were to just have this reading or if a preacher were to, to share, share a message on this, I mean, we can all reflect on the fact that we at times neglect his word or we at times don't trust his word to be as um, purposeful and accomplishing its purpose as we, uh, as, as we should. Um, that at times we neglect to hear it, at times we neglect to trust it. Um, and we need to, we need to, to realize that we should trust it. Um, or we could, the, the, the reality is we could be so bombarded by all these things in the world that try to tell us, oh, you know, I can do this and I can do that. And all these promises that we receive in the world, whether it be from people or just institutions or, um, any other source that all these things in this world may make promises, but God's word is the only true thing that always and forever actually does what it says it's going to do. Um, and there, and also lies in the fact that we want to draw a connection in that um, his word accomplishes its purpose. And what better way can we see God's purpose accomplished through his word than through Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ, who is the word incarnate, the word in the flesh. Which, if you were to turn to the familiar chapters of John um, chapter 1, um, verses... 1 through 3, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later, verse 14, the Word became flesh. So Jesus Christ, who is the Word, um, we also have the fact that in John chapter 6, Jesus talks about himself as um, the bread of life, which is another connection to um, Isaiah 55. But point is, is Jesus is the Word who actually came into this world to do the very things that God's Word said he would do 
So in the flesh is God's word doing the very things, the purposes, the salvation he has said and promised for this world. Um, and then that also makes me think of uh, one phrase. Ooh, hopefully I'll get my Latin right. Um, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Verbum domine manet aeternum. I think I got all the tenses right there. <laughs> you can correct me. My Latin's a little rusty. Um, only took one year of that and need to work more on that. Anyways, so the word of the Lord endures forever. Also make, just makes me think of, we're looking at the word, not as the word accomplished its purpose, but the word always endures. So uh, I really wish we, we were having this study in person. I could ask for any questions, but I can't. So uh, we're going to take a, I'm going to take a brief pause and then we're going to go on to the epistle lesson. I mean, don't go anywhere. I'm just going to take a drink of water, uh, but we're going to go on to Romans chapter 8. The epistle lesson for the Sunday of July 12th is Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Just turn to that page in my Bible. Romans chapter 8. Verse 12 through 17, the word of God says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here ends our scripture reading for next weekend. So, uh, Romans chapter 8. Again, the author of Romans, just a brief reminder, is Paul. Uh, so Paul writing to the church in Rome, you've got that, so then, brothers. Um, just a reminder, my guess is likely a reminder, but this term brothers is used often in Scripture. But it often, and definitely in this case, it, it really initiates a more personal, uh, relational type of, to this to, feeling to this, to this word. So he's writing to them, and my point is that as Paul's writing to the church, he's not trying to be distant. He actually has a connection, and he actually wants to maintain a connection. So it's a it's a bit more relational, intimate um, word. And I know that word intimate can be used in all different kinds and connotations, but this is just a more, it's a personal family type word that's used. Um, and so that I think that's fairly fair to apply, one, in that original context, as I just said, but also I think that can apply to us today as well that this word is a personal, relational, family-type, uh, intimate word for us, too, that we are part of the family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, which, of course, I must always say, I know it doesn't often say sisters in Christ. Actually, I don't know. Anyways, um, but brothers includes both the male and the female, and as we read Scripture. So to all our people, to the people, people to the church, to the family in Christ, is this word. So what it says is, so then, brothers, we are debtors. That word, debtors. Um, interesting word. Uh, I don't think we use it super common in our world today, although the, that word debt is um, unfortunately too common for many people, right, that we'd like to see. We'd like to be out of debt. 
But anyways, that's a sidetrack. Um, we are debtors, right? We have this debt to something. And so what's our debt to? Notice here it says we are debtors not to the flesh. Okay, so and actually, so so we're not debtors to the flesh, which is interesting. I think most Christians, if you're to say, oh, scripture, what are, what are we debtors to? What are we enslaved to? Well, the flesh. Well, but here he's actually saying we're not, right? And not that he's trying to contradict scripture or other things. Actually, though, if you look in the context a little bit earlier, Romans chapter 8, the whole portion of that um, in verses 1 through 11 is talking about how the fact that we're free from the law. And I can't get into that scripture. Hopefully you got into it last week. Um, but part is, point is we're free from the law, free from the flesh. And so what are we debtors to? Spoiler, it's the debtors to, um, to the spirit, to Christ, to God. Okay, so, so no longer slaves to the law, but slaves to Christ. And I share that, and I say that term here, because uh, here we are in Bible study. Um, but that, I think, would be a really odd phrase to say. To randomly in in just typical daily life if you were talking to your friend you're like oh i'm slave to christ <laughs> they're like me like what um what does that mean right you're a slave to christ well is you know and that could bring up negative connotations of you know or are you you know is your god loving god or you have to be a slave to him and and that's not what we're talking about here um and of course you've got slave and just the reality is um, in our world today, in the climate, and the the very important discussions that are being had, that word slave um, has a lot of um, very difficult conversations attached to it right now. And again, I don't think that this Bible study in this second is the place um, to unpack that word and all those all the, the challenges accustomed to that word. But Scripture reality is is uses that word, um, slaves or servants or debtors. Um, and so here to focus on what we're doing here in this Bible study, is that we're, we're debtors not to the flesh, but to God, which is not a bad thing. It's actually a beautiful thing. It means that we're obliged to live for God. And again, that's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. It doesn't mean our God just wants to just impose harsh punishments and rules and regulations or who knows what on us. It actually means that we get to we get to live for God because to live for God means that he, he knows who we are. He knows we're, who, that we fail. He knows we're sinners. He knows all about us. And yet we get to live for him. We get to live. And that's how, where this passage will go. And look at the blessings, what it means to live for him. So verse 13 um, goes on. And it says, for if you live by the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What are the consequences of living according to the flesh? Paul puts it very clearly. Death. Right? Put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Now if we don't put the... So then the opposite. If we don't put the, de- the, the deeds of the flesh uh, to death, then we would die. Which is serious. Right? And of course here, this is not talking about um, very physical. Because unfortunately we know that uh, many people in this world, including our sinful selves at times, um, or maybe where we were at earlier on in our life before we knew of God and His Word, that we lived according to the flesh, and we didn't die. Or we see people in this world who live according to the flesh, and they don't die. They live for what they want, how they want, not according to God's Word, breaking the commandments, and they don't die. So this is talking about spiritual here, the spiritual death. And the challenge for us humans who are tempted just like everybody else, is that living according to the flesh, it looks great. And probably at times it feels great, right? Or so we think. Or in the moment it feels great. But eternally, 
for the for the long term, it actually doesn't, and it does even worse. And the fact that that in that short term, uh, feeling great, looking great, sounding great, has just an incredibly long lasting impact if that's all we live for. But um, so how do we put to death the deeds of the body? It says verse thirteen, the spirit. Okay, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So key word here is you're not going to be able to do it on your own. It's all the spirit. It's God thing. that We cannot do this. You think you're going to wake up and you're going to say, you know what? This is the day I'm done with it. This is the day I'm with those, done with those ways. This is the day that I'm done living that life. Not on your own. Only by God. By the spirit. And for us um, Christians especially, I think where we have to look is our baptism. That in your baptism, those things are put to death. The reality is we live our life, and yes, we're tempted to those things, but at times we fall back into them. That's not who we are. That's not We are not just people of the flesh. We are people of God, people of God who've fallen into sin or who've gone back to the temptation that we, we, we've tried not to. Who we are are, are children of God. But um, that was a deed accomplished by the Spirit, and so daily as we wake up and we remember our baptism, we remember what did the Spirit put to death in us, the old ways, the old sinful flesh. And so now with the Spirit, we pray, do that for us today again. That today as we begin our day, we begin our day putting those old ways to death. And instead living for God, living as a debtor to God, living for Him. And it's really easy for me to say all that as I sit here in a room by myself recording Bible study for you than it is to do. And I know that. I've faced struggles myself. I'm sure you've got your own struggles. You've talked with friends and, and anyone else. This is difficult. Living this life, living a life for God is difficult. God never said it would be easy. And if someone did tell you, yeah, they were lying. Um, but it's a struggle. It's a battle. right? And, and we still live in this world where we're still pulled on all those old ways. But the encouragement I give you today and I pray truly sticks in your heart, is what God says, is that who you are is not that person. You're not that temptation. You're not that old way. You're not that flesh and sinful self. You are, as I'll skip ahead here now, children of God, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And if I had more time, I'd go off on a very long excursus on identity right there, but that's the important thing I think we all need to remember, is that who we are are God's. Our deeds, our actions do not define us. Do they have impact? Should we care about them? Yes. And it matters what we do, what we say, what we think. But praise be to God that we are, our identity is children of Him, His people, who are not defined by those things, but defined by God. So, let's go back to the scripture we're supposed to be looking at. So uh, verse 14 through 17 now, as I've kind of alluded to in a little bit, gets into the assurances of um, the people who are, are given the Spirit. So as we see this, these challenges now, here we have the, the assurances. So verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So one is that you're led by the Spirit. Uh, interesting, I was reading the one in the commentary who talked about how, uh, reminded me at least, of that it says led by the Spirit which is exactly the same thing that Jesus was, uh, it, Jesus experienced when he went into the, the desert for the temptations, that he was led by the Spirit before he was tempted. And, that, and there, he resisted temptation. 
Now, one, we must always remember he's God. So he did, and he always will resist temptation. But also, um, I mean, he's one with the Spirit. You could say, well, okay, Spirit, right? So, so can't we also then think how we, led by the Spirit, can resist temptation? I think so. Obviously, remember, we're not God, but going with God in us, the Spirit in us, we can resist temptation. And also, I think, just a reminder that, again, the Spirit does the work. The Spirit leads, but and we have a part, right? We could, and there's the whole discussion on how we can reject the Spirit, right? And we do have to, you know, I mean, we pray to God the Spirit would lead us, but also, I mean, if you choose to do sinful things, I mean, there is a, there is some kind of part that you have to it, but also remember that fundamentally the essential work is done by the Spirit. So, one assurance is you're led by the Spirit. Second assurance, as it says in that verse as well, um, or going on in the next verses also, is that you are sons of God. Again, this term can apply to um, all male and female. Okay, Inclusive sons being an inclusive plural in another language. Um, so, the one concept here I want to bring out too that I was reminded of in, in my study is that this concept of being sons of God was often in this context of the Greco-Roman world. It was, it was fairly familiar. It would be a fairly familiar concept that um, believers of different, even different religions, so not necessarily Christian, right, but just believers of, of, of some kinds of God or, or people of faith in some sorts, they had this term of sons of God. That to, so to people in that context, it would be familiar. Oh, a son of God means you're cared for, you're protected by your God. Of course, we believe there's only one true God, right? So here when he uses this term that you're sons of God, it's a term that would connect with people who've heard this concept, but now he's trying to apply it to the one true only God that exists as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, also, this term sons of God has, has roots in Old Testament and in Judaism as well. So point is, it's a common term that people would understand. They understand what it means. And I think today in our world, we're fa- it's fairly easy to understand as well. I mean, we know what a son is. Um, many people in this world are a son. I'm a son. Um, but you know what it means to be a son or a daughter. And again, we live in a fallen world. And at times those um, parent-child relationships are corrupted um, by sin and the broken world we live in. But we know what it's supposed to be. And we know what the, what a perfect relationship would be like Um and we have, and our God is our perfect Father, our perfect God. So this is the concept that applies here. Um, so we go on. And it says that as sons of God, the Spirit in us, um, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Um, now this is kind of a personal thing, in my opinion, based on my study and my learning of this. I do not feel that this is um, a word that means. Well, I'll, hold on. It's an Aramaic word, Abba. The word Abba is Aramaic. And I do not think that it means daddy. And I just share this because um, I've heard it in different, a couple different places, um, but through my study and my study with other scholars, um, that it's a word that has childlike intimacy. <coughs> Excuse me. It, ha- it, it, in- it expresses childlike intimacy and confidence in the person. So to say father or, or maybe dad. Um, but more importantly, I like the translation here, Abba, father. Right now, I think that in our world today, people do not often say um, "father" as the most intimate way. Right, like for my children, my children run up to me and they say "dad." Sometimes they say "daddy." Um, now that I'm thinking about, it, I don't know if they do say "daddy." Um, but anyways, you know, many people in our world, it's great if you call your dad "daddy." That's fine, um, and that's your personal connection with him. But I don't actually think that's a fair translation. And the other reason I think with that is. 
it seems a little bit odd in my view of it. Again, this is the way I believe. And I, I, I think of my personal God, who is our God. But I just, I just can't take myself to call him Daddy God. Um, to me, that just doesn't grant the, the same reverence and awe and power that our Heavenly Father has. Um, so again, if you feel that way um, and you want to challenge me, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, we're all in it to learn and grow, which actually I'll talk about even more in the next scripture reading. And if you know more Aramaic than I and scripture and you want to say, all right, you're wrong. Yeah. All right. I'm open to that. Um, just my interpretation of it. So point is, is here that with the spirit in us, we're sons of God. And we cry out with this very personal cry to our father, our God, that um, he's ours. And also, I think that you remember, this is interesting. This is the cry. This is what commentary reminded me of. This is the cry that Jesus said in his prayer to the Father in heaven in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's to be your will, take this cup. I mean, this intimate, personal prayer he prayed. And we get to pray that intimate word as well. Abba, Father. Um, so again, then verse 16 again tells us we're children of God, but goes on to say we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So, Again, this children of God brings us back to that, that baptismal language. But now this heirs um, is such a loaded term because you think about it, the Old Testament history that God's people had with, um, with God is that, you know, this inheritance of God to his people through the fathers and generations and the generations on from there. So to be an heir is something um, very well understood by the people in this context to the church in Rome and even on before that. And I think it's a concept we understand today. Um, then heir is received an inheritance, received that the one who comes before you has to give, um, has to offer. And of course, this is uh, different different than earthly inheritance. Um, becoming heirs of God, you're already an heir. If, you're, if you have Christ's name on you, if you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you already have the inheritance of God. Now, you haven't fully realized it in the sense of a full restored creation, but you also have it fully too. You have eternal life. You have forgiveness. And that's different from our earthly concept of heirs because if someone in your family should die and they leave you an inheritance, well, they first died and they left this earth, then you get the inheritance. But through Christ, you already have the inheritance. Now, Christ died, so you could talk about that. But the point is, is you don't, you don't have to wait. When you're baptized as an infant, which I was blessed to be, I already had the inheritance of God. I didn't have to wait some, to some point in my life. I get to have this my whole life. So, a um, couple of things to wrap this portion of Scripture up. And then we'll move on to the Gospel lesson for the next Sunday. In this Scripture passage, Romans 8, verses 12 through 17, we have quite a few either-or distinctions, very kind of black and white, if you will, very stark contrast ones. you got the flesh and the spirit we talked about, death and life, slavery and adoption. And then one I don't think it's, it's very overt, but I think you could talk about is fear and trust. So just interesting here that in Paul in this, in this passage just uses those very either-or distinctions. Um, which, I mean, can be helpful, can be challenging, depending on who you are or what point you're at. Um, in your faith journey, just reading scripture, sometimes those are helpful, sometimes they're not. Um, but this is what God's word gives us. And the last thing I'll point out, I didn't really highlight it well enough. I want to make sure it's clear, because um, I thought it was neat when I learned about it, was this, this progression in verse 16, 
that the Spirit, verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And just an interesting progression. And I mean, not to say that, well, as children of God, you're not fully heirs, right? No, it's all one and the same, but just this, the verbal um, um, kind of transition and the verbal uh, progression in which we're given that Paul makes it so evidently clear of just how blessed are you? You're so blessed, right? Like being children of God, incredibly blessed. But if you didn't understand what that means, I'll give you another word to tell you just how wonderful that means. You're an heir. Oh, do you don't understand how, how blessed you are? Well, let me tell you even more. You're an heir of God. Even more, let me tell you now that you are fellow heirs with Christ. It's just a beautiful progression to show just how deep and incredibly blessed we are by God. So, going to stop there um, with our reflection on Romans. I want to make sure we have time for a gospel lesson. So, for the um, sixth, sixth Sunday after Pentecost, next Sunday, Sunday, July 12th, our gospel lesson will be from Matthew chapter 13. It's going to be Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and then we skip all the way to verse 18 through 23, and the reason we skip is because we are looking at, in this gospel lesson, the parable of the sower, and between verses 9 and 18, there's another parable, and um, so then verse 18 through 23 picks up the explanation of the parable of the sower. So for the lectionary, they figured, well, we'll skip the middle one. <laughs> Just focus on one parable and the fact that God, or Jesus Christ, uh, who is God, um, but Jesus explains it, and perfect. So we're going to be in worship. You're going to have someone maybe share a sermon on this. You get the parable, you get the explanation. It's perfect. Um, all together. So first, let's read it. God's word from Matthew um, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9 and 18 through 23. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by, beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to the sow, and he sowed, and as he sowed, some f- seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no, no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root himself, but endures for a a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word 
and understands it. He indeed bears fruits and fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and in another a sixty, and in another thirty. Here ends the gospel lesson for next Sunday. So the parable of the sower. Again, for many of us, a familiar one. Um, if not, great. Again, we get to look at scripture. Um, but I think the challenge is, I was listening to one uh, source. You know, the challenge, especially with this parable, is that it's one many people have heard before. And maybe even you're like, okay, what's, what's this guy going to say new about this parable? And maybe I won't say anything new to you. Maybe you know it, great. Uh, my prayer is if you know it, you hear something different or you hear it in a way that, that hits you differently because you're in a different place in life. But again, we have God's word coming to us. And this is the whole, really the whole thrust of this passage. God's word is given to the people. And God's word is going to do its work. Right? And we may think we've heard it. We may think we don't know. I mean, we may not understand it. The point is God's word is sown and it does its work. Which goes back to Isaiah, that God's work always accomplishes the purpose for which it's sent. And here, essentially, we have the fact that God's word, it's sown, it's spread, it's, it's spoken out in the world so that it, people, that, so that it would bear fruit. So that people would hear it and understand it. And ultimately, really, that gets at the fact that people then would receive its blessings and, and, and trust in it. But, I don't want to get ahead of myself too much. So, we look at this, uh, our passage, excuse me, our passage begins... Jesus goes out, he sits by the side of the sea, which for many of us is very typical, that's where he's doing kind of his, his little um, way of doing ministry. He's going out, he's sitting with the people, he's got crowds around him. And it says in verse 3, he told them many things in parables. Now parables, um, we could go on a very long excursus on this, but I will not, don't worry. <laughs> and I'm sure people have written dissertations or the like on, on parables, but it's essentially another portion or type of writing. I mean, you could maybe say genre if you wish. Um, but another way of writing um, and speaking in this case, because Jesus is speaking, a way of teaching that essentially puts two things side by side and allows the comparisons to be made. And you, you can see the comparisons. Now, the challenges to parables, remember, are the fact that we don't want to see, well, not to sound too basic, but too much or too little in them. Right? So we look at this and we've got the parable of the sower. We don't want to see... Um, too much in the sense that we take every little detail in those first nine verses or less technically um, those first nine verses and draw a pinpoint thing to well this seed is exactly this thing in our life and, and if we do two more of those details you can get into the challenge of allegorizing making everything be uh, over symbolized result essentially of the scripture now the other end of that spectrum we also don't want to see too little in it and completely, essentially, ignore the the parable, the teaching, the um, literal, the the more literal story. Right, thinking of a of a of a a person sowing and seeds. We don't want to ignore those details that can literally happen in this world, and just focus on the meaning, the explanation that Jesus gives, or which in which cases he doesn't always give an explanation. We don't want to just focus on just the theological and ignore the other descriptions as well. But the point is, is he uses this very real-life situation that could happen that people would understand and puts it side-by-side side his teaching so that hopefully people understand his teaching better, right? Excuse me. And so here in the parable of the sower, 
um, which is interesting. I mean, probably they did some work on this. But in the lectionary, Isaiah 55, you've got the water coming down and water on the earth. And so God's word through Isaiah at that time, hundreds of years earlier, he spoke to people using agricultural terms that they would have understood. And now here Jesus is sitting with the crowds, and he uses essentially agricultural con- terms that the people would understand. And I think even in today's world, as I've already said, we're not all that agricultural in the way that we, all of us live our daily lives, but we can understand these concepts generally enough to, to still understand it. If you don't, right, then we go to people who know, <laughs> uh, which is why I went to books and, and podcasts to listen to study this passage, or you could talk to a farmer or anything. So anyways, we see this, this parable. So he speaks to them as parables, and here he gives this parable. And this parable of the sower is kind of is really the first one he gets into. Um, and it's interesting. Um, I hadn't really noticed this before. Um, but this parable is actually, well, it's called the parable of the sower, which I've said like 10 times. Um, but it's called that by Jesus, um, which is interesting. Because if you turn to verse 18, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. And I didn't realize this before. Maybe I just totally missed it. Should have. But um, most parables, the names that they that they are given, you know, if you read in your Bible, the subtitles, uh, those little headings, which aren't part of Scripture, but are put there by people who've spent a lot of time to understand the Scripture. Um, the subtitles, those headings are not, for most parables, or the, the names of the parables are given by those who study Scripture. Not many of them are actually given by Jesus. And this is interesting. Because Jesus actually names this one. And there are some scholarly debates that people think, well, this shouldn't be called the parable of the sower. Maybe it's about the seed or other things. But I think any time Jesus clearly says something, I think more than anything else, that's definitely a time you listen and you're like, yep, that's what it should be called. <laughs> um, for someone to say, disagree with Jesus, that he didn't know what to call his, his own parable, <laughs> I don't know how you can do that. But anyways, you see that Jesus calls this the parable of the sower, which... I think that's what we need to root ourselves in as we go through the, through this parable and think about it, that it's called the parable of the sower. So we need to focus and have attention on the sower. He's the one who's in charge, and he's the one who's ultimately doing the work, and really this sower, the seeds that are sown, are all from him. Okay, So if we use that to root ourselves as we, as we break down this parable and its theological implications, just remember it's about the sower. It's about God and him sowing his word. So, we look at this parable, and we see verses then 4 through um, 8, essentially. He talks, he uses the parable. You've got the seed. You've got different places the seed falls along the path, so there's not much space for it to really grow. It's going to get trampled, right? Not a great place for, for seed to grow. You've got, because also it says the birds are going to devour. You've got seed on a rocky ground. Right? I think even if many of us aren't agricultural, we know seed's not going to grow well in rocks. It just doesn't. Um, and then it springs up, but there's not even enough soil to really truly um, let it grow. So even if it does grow up on rocks, it's not going to last long. Uh, then you've got it around thorns, which essentially choke it out. Um, and then the last one, you've got the good soil, which produces grain. 100 fold, 30, 60, and 30. Excuse me. So... When you look at this, you see all these different places that the seed is sown. And obviously, the, there's the good soil, the one place that's truly going to bear fruit. But also, I think it's important for us to realize the seed is sown in the other places. And I think that's, again, it's like, 
God's God's the sower. I'm just going to jump ahead here. God's the sower who's sowing his word. That's the seed, the word of the kingdom, the word of God, the word of his, his, his son, Jesus Christ, what he's doing for the world and the world to come. And he's the one who sows the word. And the point is, is he scatters his word all over. And the only place it bears fruit is on the good soil. But it is still going to other places. And here's the other thing I think that's interesting about this parable as, as I studied it and read more about it. You've got God, Jesus Christ, who's God. He's comparing the word of God to a seed, a little seed. Now, you could argue with me there are bigger seeds and littler seeds, and yes, there are, but still seeds are small compared to the rest of creation, right? So God's word is compared to a little tiny seed. And I think that's just amazing. And yeah, it's a powerful, and science has nothing to do with it, but just like, okay, this little seed, and it's spread all over. That's God's word. And yet, think, and I think there you could talk about, and I don't think it'd be the, the proper thrust of the whole whole passage, but you could talk about the fact that even God's little word, a uh, little seed, can do so much. And back to tie in Isaiah 55, even the, the little bit of his word that is, is given and is sown accomplishes the purpose, purpose for which it is sent. But I don't want to get too off track. So look at verse 18 uh, through 23, and the parable is explained. It's great. Jesus tells us what it means, right? He doesn't always do that with his parables. So this is awesome. Um, look at these different passages. The one that's along like the path is because the evil one snatches up and takes what's been sown. This verb, oh, it is a nasty verb, the snatch, right? So I kind of say it with that weird tone because it's a, it's a terrible word, it's snatched up. Um, then you've got the rocky ground. There's no roots, Right, because when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, that's interesting. The tribulation isn't just some random tribulation, right? Not just some hurricane or natural disaster or something that happens. It's on account of the word. That's something that we could talk about if we had more time, right? But when tribulation or persecution happens, it gets scorched up, and then there's another one that gets choked because uh, there's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So not just the love of pursuit of riches, but the emptiness of riches. Should we even gain them? That can choke it up, right? And then this last one, though, the good soil. Here's what's most important, I think, to this whole passage, this parable. The good soil is the one who hears the word and understands it. In every case in this parable, wherever the word is sown, it's always heard, right? Go back in these verses. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word, um, then you go on. And you see the the rest of the word, wherever it's sown, it's always heard, right? So the word's heard every which place, every different place. Now some places it's snatched up, some places it's burned up, some places it's choked out. Really negative when you think about those are the three words that are used. But when it has, when it bears fruit, when it grows proper and good, is when it's understood. And that's I think the key of this passage, as I've studied it and looked at it, right. It's about the understanding it. And so you're saying, okay, so what? how am I supposed to understand it? Sometimes I admit myself, I don't understand what the Bible says, right? And that's where I think we need to look at ourselves. This passage, this parable is not about us saying, okay, I got to go in and I got to root out all my problems, all my thorns, all my thistles and all this stuff and make my soil good. Do we at times put obstacles in the way and essentially put snares or traps or thorns in the way that we're hearing the word of God? Yeah. 
We have sin in our life. We have things that we've done. We don't put our self in good places to hear the word. We don't give ourselves the opportunities to understand it as we could, and we have resources too. But ultimately, this is about understanding. And how do I understand God's word? Through the Spirit. Tying Romans, right? Through the word itself. Just let the word do the work. Back to Isaiah 55. So we let the Spirit do his works. What should we do? We should pray. And some of you might say, okay, prayer is good, but now what else? And I would agree. There is one other thing you can do. Find other people to help you understand it. I mean, in order for me to prepare this Bible study for, for you all, for you all to get into God's Word, I read multiple different books, listened to multiple different sources. I don't always understand it. I'm a pastor. And if anyone ever tells you they always understand it, they're probably lying. That's just my opinion, Right? Because I think we can always learn, seek to understand more and more of what God has for us. We're people. We'll never understand everything. And so all of us need to find ways to study His Word. You're doing it now by listening to this. Awesome. Keep doing it. Keeping in Bible study with other people. Whether it be with pastors like myself who are blessed to lead you through Bible study. Or another pastor or clergy or who knows what, right? Or maybe it's your, just your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your friends. Your church members. Maybe those who are just in your household. Maybe it's just your kid. Right? How often do we just learn from kids when we think we're supposed to teach them? I mean, we can all learn from each other. So how do we understand? We go to the resources God's given us. So the parable of the sower, I think, has significant implications on the fact that we live in a world where the devil's trying to snatch us away, where there are temptations trying to choke up our, our trust in the word, where we have our own sin that causes problems and, and whatnot. But we need to seek to be that good soil by simply seeking God first. By trusting Him that His Word will work, it will accomplish its purposes, and that His Spirit will truly lead us. As we go back to Romans, to lead us, the Spirit lead us. right? So, that is where I will end our study. Um, let's get into those. And I pray that truly this is beneficial for you. I thank you for, for spending time with us at St. Paul's by listening through whatever medium you are. And I look forward to studying God's word with you another time soon. So let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, especially as we look at the power, the beauty, the blessings that your word bestows upon us and upon all creation. Lord, may you lead us by your spirit that we may trust your word, and that we may be in your word, hearing your word as much as possible, and that we may understand it. Understand it by your spirit, by prayer, through prayer, and by the people that you bless us with in our lives. Lord, we thank you for these things, and may you strengthen us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.